You're listening to the School of Reinvention podcast. I'm your host, Roger Osorio. I'm the author of The Journey to Reinvention, How to Build a Life Aligned with Your Values, Passion, and Purpose. I'm also the founder of The School of Reinvention, a community-based coaching platform where we help people define success on their terms and reinvent themselves to make it happen. I believe that as the years pass, our values, passions, and purpose evolve, and we must reinvent ourselves in order to stay aligned with who we really are and what matters to us. This podcast is all about exploring different journeys to reinvention so that you can learn the strategies for how to successfully launch your next reinvention. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the School of Reinvention podcast. I am your host, Roger Osorio. I'm a reinvention coach and author of the book, The Journey to Reinvention, How to Build a Life Aligned with Your Values, Passions, and Purpose. I am incredibly excited for today's in-studio interview (laughs) with Drew DeLeon, who is the co-founder and chief community officer of the Digilog. The Digilog is a diverse global music and tech community that programs educational conversations career resources, and artist discovery content. Community-driven since 2016, and we're going to talk all about this journey to bringing this thing to life. He and I met back in 2016 when he was actually just getting this off the ground, and it started off with a meetup that was, I think you say the story is 16 or 17 people that showed up, and now you're hosting multi-day events with people flying in, sponsors, all this crazy stuff. So first of all, congratulations uh, on on the growth. And and thank you so much for taking some time to be here with us and sharing with us your story of bringing something so cool to life. First of all, it's a full circle moment because of where we were, we're in different pathways back in 2016. But I always like to say, and we mentioned this before this podcast interview, you really gave me the confidence when talking about the digital law, because at the time it was at its infancy. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily know what it was, but when you talked about the opportunity to speak mm-hmm. at that Techstars event, I had no resume to say like I could speak on these things, but mm-hmm. I knew I was confident enough to, and it allowed me to build relationships with folks like Jordan, you know, yeah. from the panel. Oh, that's so cool that you yeah, did. Yeah, and you spoke at one of my, my panels afterwards, and we're still like, you know, protected to this day, but yeah. I just always want to give you your flowers for giving me that confidence. Yeah, I, I appreciate hearing that. And the event that Drew is talking about is called the Startup Weekend, and this was a music tech edition. So aspiring entrepreneurs, existing entrepreneurs all came together to pitch ideas for music technology. And then they spent the entire weekend learning and actually building their idea into a fully like, you know, launchable concept that they could pitch to a panel of judges. And Drew was one of those judges. You were just incredible because again, it's the success of that event comes down to that final event where we bring in so many diverse people who bring in really different questions. I mean, I obviously as a facilitator of an event like that, I'm at drilling these, you know, entrepreneurs with questions throughout the whole weekend. But at some point, it's the same questions all the time. And it's so cool when, you know, folks like you come in and just ask them completely different questions. And with you, we, I mean, it was like a double win because not only were you a creator, you know, you were working with music labels, but you were deep in the industry. You cared about the tech and all of that. And so it added a lot of value, man. So now we, we loved having you. I'm so glad. And, and it's so cool to know that that involvement at that point in your journey was just so critical, you know, for building confidence. Uh, so, yeah, and I'm really glad that, you yeah. know, our team and I could like help you with that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I wanted just to state that, kick yeah. it off that way. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, today what I want to talk about with you is really, this is like our catch-up session. I mean, yeah. it's been a minute since we've talked and so much has happened with the DigiLog and, you know, what you've done with that community. And the reason why I think this is so important for this particular podcast and for this audience is because I think as people look to reinvent their lives, reinvent mm-hmm. their careers or whatever it might be, what I have found from interviewing many on this show and also my own journey is the importance of people in all right. of that. And of course, whenever you can build that community as a part of your reinvention, I mean, yeah. man, forget about it. It takes it to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. So honestly, I'm here as a student as well. And I'm trying to learn from you because we finally have clarity over what the school of reinvention is and can be. Mm-hmm. And one part of that is a community. And so I feel I'm Drew 2016 right now. And so I want to learn from Drew 2023, who's already done so many incredible things, approaching eight years with this. And I think that listeners who might also feel like, you know what, I want to build a community too, or I've thought about it, or I've tried it and it didn't work out. Right. Well, we can learn from you, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm, hum- I'm humbled to be here. So let's kick it off. Take it yeah. back to 2016. Set the scene for us so we know where your mind was. Mm-hmm where, you know, where your spirit was, where your confidence was, yeah. anything that you think is relevant. And then, you know, let's start talking. Yeah, I think even before 2016, I just want to create some context mm-hmm. just so the viewers and the listeners can really understand, like, where I'm coming from. Yeah. So more context about me. I'm first-gen Filipino-American, grew up in Queens. So for a lot of first-gen immigrants, you know, children, the expectations to, like, study hard, get that quote-unquote corporate job are pretty high. Yeah. So the idea of creating opportunities within the creative field or pursuing creative endeavors are always kind of just looked down upon or just not necessarily supported. So I went to Baruch College for business Mm -hmm. and I studied marketing because I didn't want to necessarily focus on finance or accounting because, you know, I just wasn't passionate about it. But I was always a creative, you know, when I was young. Yeah. And I think for me, being passionate about English and art, I always just would daydream about things and I figured out how do I tap in these things I think about at school and make that something that I can focus on. And I think marketing was like the best place to start. But, you know, once I graduated, there wasn't a lot of marketing opportunities. So I found myself working at a finance job okay. at an investment bank. And, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing, you know, making my, my parents proud Yeah, because I worked for a prestigious bank. But the expectations and the pressure were high. You know, I moved downtown in Battery Park. I thought I was deemed successful, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my eyes and my parents' eyes because they thought this was like, you know, you're breaking the barrier, you're doing the right things, you're working in mm-hmm. finance, you're living this really cool apartment in downtown Manhattan and you're setting yourself up for success. But the reality is I felt empty. Yeah. And, you know, from 2006 to 2009, you know, I kind of just like went with the punches of just working there and, and yeah. dreaded every Monday going in. And it was an important moment for me to be self-aware about it because mm-hmm. the year leading into my pivot, I was thinking about various things to like pursue and music wasn't necessarily a thought, but I was around music folks and creative people. Yeah. And I was serendipitously connected to a friend who was a DJ and he was looking for someone to support him and kind of get him out in the, in the marketplace and he knew I had business acumen. I didn't necessarily know what I was doing, but 
my entry point and just for context to music was being a music manager mm-hmm. and that was my entry point around 2010 when i pivoted from finance to music okay fast forward to 2016 i'm you know running a creative agency where like i'm helping supporting artists really position their brands online i'm supporting labels to ha- navigate the, the social media landscape yeah and i'm also working out of a co-working space called wix where I was able to see other entrepreneurs start their businesses, yeah. but also create events and meetups around their 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 focuses, right? Yeah. So there was a fashion meetup, there was something focused on art. And yeah. in my eyes, I was like, where is the music community? And how do I get the music community in this space? I reached out to the Wits admin team and I was like, mm-hmm. hey, let's put together a meetup. And that was our first meetup. I didn't necessarily know what it was going to be, but I think the genesis of the Digilog, which really stands for Digital Dialogue, yeah. was really a conversation to have with the music and tech community, yeah. right? You have the creative community, but you also have these architects mm-hmm. and builders to be in a space where they can talk to each other. Yeah. And that was really the thesis around me starting it mm-hmm. with me and my co-founder, Mevis, at the time. And okay. that was the genesis of it. That space, I actually remember, yeah. is it on 23rd Street? 23rd right. Street. Yeah, I totally remember. I, I worked out of there a few times, actually. Yeah. We were probably in the same room at the same time <laughs> before we knew each other. Probably. And I really thank companies like that to yeah. be forward thinkers, understanding the, the importance of like communal spaces. Yes. Where, you know, you have entrepreneurs that can't necessarily afford offices, but a desk and being in the space where, you know, I found my co-founder, I found my first lead designer, built a lot of relationships with people outside of the music space. Yeah. And those spaces, I think, are still very important. Those spaces need to still exist. Yeah. I think for creatives and hopefully there's a brand that can really foster that because, you know, I like to say, you know, Wix allowed me to like start the Digilog, you mm-hmm. know, because of that space. That's awesome. I mean, that's the, and I hear you. I, I mean, I agree with what you said about those types of spaces and and it's crazy you know we're talking and it's only been what a week now since the bankruptcy or a week and a half since the bankruptcy we work and i don't think we work is a failure in the idea i think it's a failure in the execution of trying to scale so quickly which is something we're going to talk about like when you try to scale too quickly before you're really ready and i think they were just not ready to scale that magic what you just described happened for you inside of the wick space which is really no different than a WeWork space. Mm-hmm. You're sitting around working with cool people who are doing interesting things, getting to know them, and then magic happens. I love what you said about also how you got into music. You mentioned people, that you were you know serendipitously connected to a couple of people in that world, the DJ and others. And that's an important theme that you know I think we're going to talk about when we get to community specifically for yeah. your members. Because you know one of the things that I find talking to people about reinvention is just the absolute critical role of people, mm-hmm. whatever the role is. I mean, they play so many roles, but when you get into a community, that's the fastest way to get caught up in a new space that you're not a part of. So if you've never been right. in music, hang out with music folks and watch if you do that for a year, how quickly you're caught up and you're like, okay, I know what's going on here. I've got ideas now. I want to bring yeah. something to life. And you know, you fast forwarded us to 2016 when you had that idea and you were ready to like bring something to life with your co-founder. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think even my entry point back in 2009 mm-hmm. was daunting. Yeah. You know, I come from a, you know, a set schedule, you know, a finance background for three years. Mm-hmm. And then I really have to like switch the way I think. Yeah. And be 
entrepreneurial and no one teaches you how to do that. Yeah. And then also find a starting point where in my mind, I'm just like going through just experiences. I'm learning, you know, I like, I don't say failure, just like being ambitious and just kind of navigating the space without any guidance. Yeah. And that's the reason why it uh, also inspired me to start the Digilog because I had community members and artists and just asked about, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? And in my mind, I was like, how do I not just help one person, yeah. but how do I help multiple people? Yes. And at once. And that was really one of the inspirations too, because mm -hmm. I knew how challenging it was for me to navigate, but oh, how can I help folks that are just starting in or feel lost? That's a powerful question right there. And that's one that I want to make note of. How can I make sure that when I answer some of these questions for one person, mm -hmm. I can also at the same time answer it for many, right? How do I scale my answer so that I'm not just helping that one person? Right. And I feel like that's a powerful driving question for building any community, because that is, I would imagine, one of the greatest value propositions that you can bring to life is, hey, I could just have a one-on-one -on -one with you over a coffee, or I could have a one-on-many in a meetup. Right. And when I answer this question in a panel, and now it's not just you hearing in the answer, but there's like 40 other people in this room tonight hearing that same answer. And for all we know, 20 of them needed that answer as well. And now you didn't have to sit down for 20 coffees. Yeah, no, 100%. I didn't necessarily see that vision. I'm just getting the inbound. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, we need to like be more efficient about this. Yeah. But the impact of it is that that compounds mm -hmm. and then that intentionality also, you, you start to see converted to impact. Yeah. Now it's a group as opposed to just one. And when you impact a group, that just compounds through word of mouth. So you mentioned that there's this period when you left finance and then all of a sudden you're starting to work your way into music. And then fast forward, you know, six years or so. And then, you know, the, the Digilog is starting to come to life. But let's talk a little bit about those six years, because I think that there, there's probably something interesting there that helped you get to the point where you could have such an inspiration. Yeah. And this is so important for listeners, because as they're thinking about their own journey to reinvention, one of the things that I want listeners to take away is that reinvention takes time and it's not something that happens overnight. There are many ways to get to a goal. There's a journey, literally. And in this case, there's like a six-year period. Let's talk a little bit about that before we get into the founding of the Digilog and the inspiration and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So when I started, like I said, my music journey, my entry point was a music manager, but I couldn't say position my brand as just Drew Deleon because for someone who had no experience, these venues, the booking agents wouldn't take me seriously. Yeah. So I started um, the company Blank Label which mm -hmm. eventually became the management company, managing DJs and artists. And I booked, you know, them from a management standpoint okay. and started managing them for a couple of years. But I also saw an opportunity to kind of expand on that and support mm -hmm. DJs and artists, just how to navigate in the digital landscape, just because you have new tools at the time. It was like Twitter was brand new. Yeah. Facebook was about five years old and Instagram wasn't even out yet. And that's right. So... I think at the time, MySpace was at the talent of like where it was. Mm -hmm. So it's just how to navigate this space. And, you know, we were creating EPKs, mm -hmm. you know, all these things that were important to... What's an EPK? Um, I'm sorry, electronic press kit. Okay, cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, for, for the audience. So like being able to like create these little, I say, descriptions about who the who the artists and DJs are. Yeah. 
where now we can find all that information online. Yeah. You know, so that was important for me. But also, you know, I had to be really frank with myself. You know, how do I monetize and make money? So this wasn't sustainable mm -hmm. outside of just me trying to like build this out. So I had to get a full-time job. You know, I wanted to still stay in the music space and figure out a way to like to do that. My friend at the time, you know, sent me an opportunity to work with Beats by Dre yeah. as a brand ambassador. So that was really like the opportunity. It was supposed to be a three-month role where they were opening up a pop-up shop. And for context for the audience, Beats by Dre was probably the most popular headphone at the time. Yeah. You know, you have Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine who collaborated. Dr. Dre is obviously a, a famous producer mm -hmm. artist, uh, decided to kind of like brand these headphones and commercialize it yeah. as like the new it. Yeah. You know, when we think of trendy sneakers like Jordans. Yeah. Jordans yeah. of headphones. Yeah. To say the least. Yeah. And it's, it was interesting to really kind of watch that because you know, as I was part of it for that three months, which eventually extended to three years, how they approached positioning this product within artists, mm -hmm. content, music videos, commercials, the intersection of music, sports, and fashion. Yeah. And it really just taught me how, like, the power of branding. Yeah. And, and how music is at the centerpiece, but you have this product that kind of is the intersection of, like, sports as well. And Mm -hmm. It was really cool to see that. By working there as a brand ambassador, I eventually became one of the senior folks on the team. I was able to meet so many people and really positioned my discount with headphones to either get more opportunities from our artists, yeah. uh, get access to events, yeah. um, really leverage that, and also position my blank label management company as like a talking point. I leverage, yes. hey, I, I work at Beats during the day, but also have this management company where I represent artists. I love to like attend this event. I love to like get an article written about this artist. And I would take, you know, I had a steep discount, you know, 75%, you know, I would invest in these headphones that were deeply discounted and send a pair. Yeah. Like, hey, like, yeah. And just like, hey, can I, can I get some support from some love mm -hmm. for, from an artist and, I leveraged that for good three years. And it was nice because, you know, it was a hot thing at the time. And obviously that kind of ended as a, you know, they decided to sell Beats to Apple. Yeah. And I knew at that point, that was an inflection point for me where like, I did enough, I've learned enough. Mm -hmm. And I decided to pursue Blank Label full time. Mm -hmm. At that time around 20, you know, 14 has evolved, right? It's not just a management company anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm helping artists. So I kind of converted it into like more of a, a music agency, yep. creative agency, where I would support artists with rollouts, campaigns, how to navigate the digital space. And I eventually picked up more, I'd say, uh, label clients. I started mm -hmm. working with various labels, back to Wix. It allowed me to work in a space where I, at the time, was only like a sole entrepreneur. Yep. So I couldn't obviously work at office, but working in a space like Wix allowed me to invite clients allowed me to have a space to go into the city yeah. and like have meetings and legitimize what I was doing yes. because, you know, I wanted to make it bigger than what it was, mm -hmm. but the reality is it was just me. Yeah. You know? you know, I want to talk a little bit about your time at Beats because I, I love what you said about how you leveraged that opportunity to make more connections, mm -hmm. to promote your other work. And this is important because I can imagine someone who decides 
I want to get into the music world. Mm -hmm. And then they think to themselves, but I don't know anybody. And so, yeah, maybe this isn't for me. You, with this story, are showing us that there is always another way into the world. There is mm -hmm. always another way. I mean, you went in as a brand ambassador. You didn't know at that point in time you were going to be there for three years. You thought it was going to be three months. But you gave it a shot anyway. You took a chance, and they took a chance on you, somebody in finance who was coming out of that finance world. And all of a sudden, you turned three months into three years. But not only did you turn three months into three years, you also helped bring your uh, blank label records to life through that. I think that's so important for listeners who are thinking about reinvention because the thing about reinvention that I always talk about is how, first of all, no two reinventions are ever alike because mm -hmm. even if you and I at the same point in time in 2009 or 10 decided that we wanted to make this pivot into music, right. we were coming at it from very different experiences, skills, backgrounds, whatever. Right. And our backgrounds are actually not that different. I was probably growing up in the same kind of way you grew up uh, as a first gen and all that, mm -hmm. just on uh, like on this side yeah. uh, on of the other river. <laughs> and, you know, so it wasn't, but even still, we'd approach it differently because we were just different people. Because of that, there's no book that would tell you mm -hmm. how to go and move from finance, you know, Baruch, then finance, then, uh, you know, prestigious banks to, into music. There's no book for that. Yep. And so that's what I think is so important about stories like yours, because you are sharing with us that, look, it's not go get a job with Beats and that's your secret to get into the music industry. No, it's like, hey, I found a three-month opportunity. I went after it and I squeezed every last drop of juice out of it until I felt that there was no more juice to squeeze out of this thing. And then you decided, you know, three years later to move on when the Apple acquisition and all of that happened and you felt that this wasn't right for you anymore. Can you tell us about walking away from that because i think i feel like there's probably a story there about like yeah. walking away like i don't think you just woke up one day and said all right no, no. i'm out no I'm, i mean to be transparent i think that it came to a point where you know my relationship with leadership wasn't great mm -hmm. and i felt like at the time you know i was undermining the way that i wanted to lead the team yeah i just felt like the, the environment and culture wasn't where it was three years prior to me i think that's important to note when working or collaborating or doing something there is an expiration date sometimes. Yeah. And that pivot, you know, it's sometimes like you want to stick with it, but do I want to stick with this next journey? But it was more so like I need to prioritize myself. I didn't feel inspired mm -hmm. to to work work there anymore. And it was a daunting task because you take the financial aspect of it, this, you know, your salary or whatever it you're making. Yeah. And now you have to like think entrepreneurially again about how you to generate revenue and it was a daunting task so like you know when that changed like i had to like work some various odd jobs in between mm -hmm. you know um just so i could just like make ends meet yeah um, and i think that's the story that people don't share like i was refereeing volleyball games yes yeah softball games i was just doing you know just making extra cash yeah i hear um, that man i parked cars i folded shirts at a mall you know, all with degrees, you know, yeah. but hey, like whatever it takes, wh whatever it takes. And, you know, obviously I had to move back, you know, and live with my parents. Um, oh my gosh, dude, or did we live the same life? Yeah. I also moved back with some parents. <laughs> yeah. So, and they, you know, thanks my mom for welcoming me back. You know, it was a humbling experience. I think those things, and in my heart, I knew I was in the right place given, you know, what the optics could be perceived to be. Yeah. Because, you know, people are like, wait, this guy was working at this bank, 
now he's working for this headphone company, but now he doesn't want to work there anymore. And, you know, people are worried, like, you know, how are you going to pay for your bills? And at the time, I was also in a relationship. You know, I was dating someone, you know, who had moved from a different country to live with me. And, you know, it was a pretty tough time because, you know, I go from making money and now I can't support it the way I can. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's brand new to a new country and she's getting her feet into it and trying to figure it out. Yeah. So that definitely affected our relationship. And I think those are things that I kind of think about now, but I also had to like make those decisions and prioritize, you know, me at the time. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously, you know, we're, we still have a cordial relationship, but, you know, I prioritized me and I knew it was a decision I had to make because, you know, I think when you're in those situations, you have to think about yourself first. Yeah. You know, it's one of those decisions where there is no decision that is the one where you clearly win mm-hmm. and yeah. everything works out perfectly. Yeah. Like usually in a tough situation like that, yeah. something has to give and, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's never easy. And I think that's an important takeaway from that story because even with something as serious and as difficult as relationships, you know, tough decisions do have to be made and, you know, carving you know, your own path is, is, uh, is different than when you follow an, a pre-existing path. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that they're different. Right. Uh, it's like you mentioned, you know, growing up, like, you know, and I feel like I felt the same way of what you said, you know, we weren't prepared for entrepreneurship because we were groomed for a nice corporate job with a stable salary and stability, mm-hmm. you know, upward mobility, all those kinds of things. Right. And then all of a sudden we chose to get off that path all of a sudden you realize we need a whole new set of skills and a whole there because there are a whole new set of rules here. Yeah. And I don't know anybody I can look to that has that skills that was close to me. Yeah. I didn't have a role model for that. So it was just like, I got to go figure this out. And of course, you know, there are difficult decisions that have to be made, like in relationships, even and like you said, you had to take care of yourself because you knew that if you didn't take care of yourself, then, well, you know, how can you ever be in a position to work on some of these other areas? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think as an entrepreneur, those decisions are, you need to obviously weigh. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, and I was very clear, like, I have to prioritize me and the, this thing I'm building, yeah. you know, for myself. You know, I'm at still at the early juncture in my career. Mm-hmm. I'm navigating this space. I'm nowhere near where I want to be. Yeah. And I had to choose my career over love, you know, mm-hmm. and relationships. And those are tough decisions to make. Yeah. Um, because no one wants, you know, your partner doesn't want to hear that. You know, like I said, we're still cordial, but it worked out in the end, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, I was able to prioritize that. But, you know, you also have to compensate for that. Yeah. Like you have your career by becoming on an incline. Yeah. But your love life is on a decline. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you're never going to always have everything you want at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I think that there's, it's so important that we, think about all the different areas of life and set intentions and goals for all of them, because it's almost, I think almost impossible for all of them to be in alignment with, you know, who you are at any given moment, because we're evolving. We're constantly changing. Maybe we're the relationship version of us is changing now, but the work version of us is, you know, we're good. We're like stable. Everything's fine. Right. So there'll be a point of misalignment here and then we'll have to adjust that. And while we're adjusting this alignment, you know, something about, I don't know, our health and our wellness is getting off alignment. Mm-hmm. Oh crap. Okay. Now I got to shift over. 
but if we have other areas that are strong, mm-hmm. we can lean on those areas during tough moments, you know, and, and sometimes the tough moment is in the relationship. Sometimes it's in the business and mm-hmm. then the relationship is strength. And that's where, you know, you can lean on to when something bad is going on in another area. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And yeah, I didn't sort of real- realize that and probably until the past year or two, mm-hmm. you know, because I was so about the career and making sure yeah. I was taking care of everyone else. Yes. And now I'm in the place where I think, you know, the digital lot and where I'm at career-wise is I'm very comfortable where, where I'm at and I can really like be present and focus yeah. on a relationship because I also need to find a partner, you know, that understands where I'm at mm-hmm. and, and partnering, you know, with that, with that person is, yeah. it understands what you're doing yeah. and that you can also have separate lives, but mm-hmm. then those endeavors don't necessarily define who you are in a relationship, you know, mm-hmm. I'm Drew first and where my partner is. Yeah. We can focus on that. Let's now pick up in 2016 or wherever you think, mm-hmm. you know, so the thing I want to get to, I guess, is the inspiration. What was that first seed of the Digilog? Like, where did that begin? I mean, I think the scene is Wix, right? We're at yeah. Wix. So kind of let's, let's talk a little bit about the seed of that idea. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you the reason why I want to cover this is, you know, for the listeners, I want them to hear how some of these ideas are born, cultivated, and because they might have already had that seed, mm-hmm. they just didn't notice it. Right. And I think by hearing stories like yours and others, mm-hmm. you know, you become aware, like, wait a minute, I think I had the seed of the idea like three months ago, mm-hmm. and now I'm aware of it. So tell us a little bit about how that started to develop. Yeah. I mean, I remember it was me and my co-founder, because we were very interested in music, Intersection of music and tech. Yeah. We went to a networking event. It was a paid event. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is, you know, I don't necessarily pay for networking events, but because there were certain people that were in the room, mm-hmm. I remember paying $35 for it. Yeah. Pretty steep for an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> and I just remember the experience. It felt, the people in the room felt very just like rushed mm-hmm. to like connect. It was really like salesy. Yeah. It's like, all right, this is what I do. Here's my card, yada, yada, yada. And here's a conversation. Here's like this panel speaker who's well-respected and great. And then outside of that, like I said, the experience felt very like forced and contrived. And we took that and we're like, wait, how do we not do that? <laughs> and because I took nothing away from this experience. Yeah. And going back to Wix as like, how do we create, you have to start with a free model because you have to create an access point for people to be, and we can talk about the business later on, but mm-hmm. it had to be free. And then finding a partner or a space to allow you to do that. So Wix was our first, I guess, mm-hmm. partner in doing so. But we wanted a space where people felt seen, not rushed, inclusive. And like I said, that first event that had about 16, 15 people, you know, it wasn't like people were in a rush to like go to the next conversation. Yes. You know, yeah. and... The, the excitement of people wanting to meet again really prompted us to say that I think we have something here. Mm-hmm. You know, like I actually like, you know, talking about what we're passionate about. It doesn't have to be every day, but we can get people outside of their bubble for one night, once a month. They feel like they're seen. And nothing is beats talking to someone that gets who you are. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, understands. Because at times we feel like we're on an island by ourselves. Yes. We're like, you can't talk to the things that you're passionate about with, 
your parents or like your siblings. Yep. You know, you need to talk to people where they're in it. Yeah. And that gives you the confidence to understand what you're doing is you're on the right path and just ha not feeling lost in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you find somebody like that, you don't have to explain all the context first. Yeah. You get to go right into that yeah. idea you have and they get it. They're like, oh my God, like yeah. that makes sense because they feel what you already feel mm -hmm. and they've been there, done that. So they get it right away. And I hear you. And that that's why these communities or these events are so important yeah. in bringing, of course, people who are interested in the same things mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about the $35 event. I, I mean, I think that's spot on. I feel like, yeah, if you pay $35 to go to a networking event, like your metrics are driven. Like I need to give away, you know, I need to collect 20 business cards. I need to set up X number of meetings. And I need, and so perhaps that's what drives the speed of like, let me just move on and all of this. Whereas when I go to another event, like more like yours, when I think about like some of the startup events that I went to in the city, I could talk to one person the whole time. And that for me, I'm like that, this was the greatest event ever yeah. because that person and I like clicked. We had some really great ideas. We've got follow-up. We're going to connect again about something else. Like for me, that was the biggest one right there. I didn't need right. to meet with 10 people. Inherently we're communal, yeah. right? We're, we're tribal. So I wanted to kind of just speak to that, you know, find, you know, that community. And one of our friends was like, Hey, if you really want to do this, you got to like be intentional. This is not a, a night where you just like, you're going to have 300 people at your events mm -hmm. tomorrow. You got to build brick by brick, really just have low expectations. Mm -hmm. But, and I think that's where it started. It was just community and networking. Yeah. And that was it mm -hmm. for the first six months okay. like doing events in, in New York city. So that's in 2016, 2016. Okay. So that's when we're meeting, we're yeah. meeting when you're right at that beginning. Yeah. So that was really the expectation. And that's for anyone that's starting out. Cause it's easy to get so ahead of yourself. Yes. And going back to our conversation earlier, the small things. And uh, I think for us, that's the way we looked at it. Be open to like iterating, mm -hmm. be opening to get feedback and what they like about this. Yeah. Because you're building it with them. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the feedback is driving a lot of this. It is. And I think that's for anyone that's listening. You, you can't just be so set on what your vision is because if you're approaching it from a community standpoint, has to be a group effort yes and it's not just your idea mm -hmm. yeah that, no that's i think such a key point right there in when i think about the startup weekend community that i was a part of you know i didn't bring that to life um but when when i joined it and took more of a leadership role you know we had to listen to everybody in terms of like what they wanted out of events what topics did they want you know i i never would have thought of music tech by the way on my own when you helped us out with the music tech event mm -hmm. as a judge that's not a, an idea that I had, right. but someone brought it to me. And I thought, hmm, maybe there is something here. Uh -huh. And it turns out there was, there was you already working on that, bringing the, bridging these two together, music and tech. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, that comes from the people and listening. Yeah, and listening. And yeah, I think that's probably one of the most important things mm -hmm. that really drive the way that we program yep. is getting feedback yeah. and putting your ego to the side and saying, I don't know everything saying I have the confidence to say that our community is communicating what they want, but the art of listening is just half of it, right? You have to listen yeah, and not just be in your own thoughts and trying to like, this is what we want you all to do. Cause it doesn't feel like uh, a collaboration at all. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That listening part is wow. So key. And, and I love what you, how you call it the art of listening, because I feel like there's listening to what people are actually saying to you, mm -hmm. but there's also listening by watching. 
how are people, and I'm sure you've done this, you're watching how they're working their way through this event. And you're probably noticing there's some friction there. There's some friction there. That's really working over there. And that's already probably getting. And, and I think that's an important thing when you're testing something out at the beginning stages. But before we go you know, too far into this, I wanted to just highlight this one moment where you notice the problem. And I think this is really important for anyone who's thinking about bringing some sort of community or any idea to life. What's the problem that you're solving? And you were inspired by a problem. You went to that $35 event. It did not feel right. And then that drove a question. How do we not do this? How do we not do it this way? And that got, and that got you and your co-founder started. Yeah, absolutely. When you see a problem, I think just kind of like putting that switch in your brain, it's, it's really just being solution oriented because people are like, well, if this exists, why can't we create something that doesn't exist? Yeah. Right. Someone created this. We could do the same. <laughs> and I think just really just unlocking that way of thinking as opposed to just selling for it. I guess I have to settle for this, mm-hmm. but why? Yeah. Why do you have to settle for the things that you don't like? And I feel like people probably felt the same way that we did. And, you know, I think that's important when trying to create or solve a problem yep. in a space that you're, you know, trying to build a community in, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about it that way. And we can talk more about other problems that we saw within the music and tech space, but with community being and networking being at like this, the centerpiece of it. Yes. Yeah. But obviously the community has evolved since then and we've been able to address other problems, mm-hmm. right? When it comes to like the music and tech job, uh, you know, resource space. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that was a problem. Yeah. Or Until you got deeper into it. Deeper into it. Supporting artists independently. I like to say that 99%, they didn't necessarily feel supported because now they have all these tools. Now it's like, how do I navigate this space as an artist? So there's an artist discovery vertical. Mm-hmm. And then education, you know, being the through line of it all, you know, allowing us to kind of like find people that are in it to kind of mm-hmm. talk and teach. And that's something that, you know, has always been a centerpiece of what we've been doing. But like I said, going back to the community, like the networking part, we're just getting people in the room. Yeah. And we didn't necessarily know what else it would evolve into. You've now grown to the point where you're solving more than just that original problem. Uh-huh. The thing that I think is important for people to listen to is that when you're getting started with something, you might see someone like Drew doing what you know he's doing with the Digilog community. But if you compare yourself to him, like your day one to his like six years or, or almost eight years now, actually, the problem there is that then it's easy to say, how do I solve all those problems on day one? And the key takeaway here is that you did not solve it. In fact, you didn't even know all of those problems on day one. You focused on one problem on day one, got rolling with that for six months or so, and we'll hear the rest of the story as you started to take on new problems. And you probably even knew of some of the other problems. You just were like, I'm not solving those right now. And this is so important for any idea, reinvention, whatever you want to bring to life. Mm-hmm. is like, find this really specific aspect of it and just mm-hmm. go deep in there have a blast doing that and grow inside of that. And then you can come out and play with the other problems right. um, at that point. And your story is like a really great example of we picked one problem. We went after that and then we discovered others. Yeah, no, that's that's so spot on. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, that's what we did. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think, yeah, it's easy to just really get excited about all these things. And, and as founders, you know, you get excited. Yeah. You know, you're like, Wow, what if we did this? And when we did that, and, and 
you don't want to cap your creativity, mm-hmm. but you got to put it to the side for a sec. And then there's a mm-hmm. time and place. Yeah. And I always like to say there's a time and place. Yeah. And it's not right now. Mm-hmm. And I had to teach myself that. Yeah. You feel like a parking lot almost and just yeah. put the idea somewhere. They're not going away forever. No. They're just for later. Just for later. And even we'll, we'll talk about this later on, like even the idea of like putting together a conference is like, yeah, like, those are grandiose ideas, but that's in the parking lot. Yeah. And, and it's okay. And I think, like I said, really tweaking the way that we think in this kind of on-demand society, mm-hmm. it's like everything doesn't have to ha- happen now. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like getting into basketball for the first time. Mm-hmm. You watch an NBA game, and you see somebody, you know, just do the craziest slam dunk, mm-hmm. and you're like, "I want to do that." It's like mm, that wasn't really good. That's not, that's not a good first goal to have. Your first goal should be like maybe let's try a layup. Yeah, you know, let's just see if I can get, bounce that ball off the backboard and yeah. get it inside. And if it goes in there, maybe I can figure out the other parts. Mm-hmm. But I could see how if you go right for the slam dunk, yeah, you're going to be discouraged. You're not going to get there. You will guaranteed fail mm-hmm. and then you'll say well this didn't work out right. and it's so important to like step back and say for a moment let me just try layups and right. and i feel like that's what you did you started with layups yeah you just get the, get the fundamentals uh, we talked about this earlier just kind of like you can't just build without mm-hmm. a foundation and i didn't necessarily know but i knew in my heart like i didn't want to rush this yeah. I, yeah I love that so take us into 2017 yeah i think with 2017 we realized all right, we're doing all these events in New York. How do we find a partner to do events in other cities? Ah, okay. Um, so, you know, we're obviously successful at a co-working space like mm-hmm. a Wix, but how do we find a partner who has co-working spaces in other cities? Mm-hmm. So we work, obviously, big co-working company, yeah. a real estate company at the time. They were obviously really focused on creatives and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to, you know, one of the locations to, to do an event. We did an event, it was successful, and I asked, what if we were able to scale this to other cities? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we did an event in Detroit? Mm-hmm. What if we did an event in Austin? Yeah. What if we did an event in Charlotte? What if we did an event in LA? And that allowed us to really scale the conversation. Yep. Because we knew New York and LA weren't the only like hubs for music. Mm-hmm. We wanted to create that experience of networking inclusivity in other cities and we were able to do that by partnering with a company like WeWork yeah. because for us it was more so like the spaces are the same yeah you were just exactly. kind of replicating that experience in different in different yeah. cities it was something you didn't have to worry about like yeah. the city to city you can just yeah. say cool if it worked here worked copy and paste over there at yep. least you know venue wise right. it should operate more or less the same yeah and that's the way we positioned it yeah they gave us a few bucks just from a, a sponsorship standpoint mm-hmm. to produce it so, you know, I think they were really one of the first monetary sponsors. You know, Wix was an in-kind sponsor. They gave us a space. Mm-hmm. We also worked with Microsoft. So Microsoft had a space on Fifth Avenue. Yes. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Upstairs. So we used their space as well. And that allowed us to, like, create some validation. Like, hey, you know, here are some brands mm-hmm. that are, you know, really looking to participate and collaborate with us. That allowed us to, like, build that reputation a bit mm-hmm. to like approach like a we work yeah. and say hey look at wix and microsoft you should you know you should partner with us yeah and when you think about sponsorships sometimes it's always not about getting that monetary sponsorship mm-hmm. you know the in-kind donations the, the in-kind offerings like whether it's a space 
is a sponsorship. Yeah. And I think that's mm-hmm. for anyone that's thinking about finding sponsors mm-hmm. is uh, sometimes just having that brand name helps leverage, you know, the next sponsorship that could yeah. be a paid one. Yeah. What I'm hearing here is like, the, you know, the, the snowball effect mm-hmm. um, and it starts with one sponsor. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said about the end kinds, like don't dismiss those. They may not seem as flashy because they didn't write a check. But when it comes to space in New York, it is expensive. You know, it is so expensive. And so for somebody to say, you know, I mean, the only reason my team and I were able to execute Startup Weekends, the one where you judged, that was, um, who was in charge of that space? Verizon. Verizon. Verizon Wireless or Verizon was in charge of that. Uh, They were the owners. Thank goodness that that was an in-kind, right? They're listed as a partner. And to your point, the brand equity that comes from that, like, you know, that helped out. And of course, the space that I I don't even want to know what that space for two and a half days, almost three days, because you got to prep what three days of space in Manhattan costs. And to this day, I still don't know because I never had to get there Mm -hmm. because of all these partners, you know, finding this. It's so key without that. Like, yeah, you don't make this magic happen. You know, so just something to think about, you know, when partnering and like I said, you're not always going to get those that big sponsorship in the beginning. But I think to your point, the snowball effect building some validation and proof and showing like, Hey, you know, there's, we got support from reputable companies. Yeah. Um, exactly. it doesn't have to be monetary. Mm-hmm. So take us a little bit further. So as you start to expand into different mm-hmm. cities, you know, so out of recapping, right, because we're learning, everyone here listening is learning about how to bring something like this to life. You know, you started with a problem and then you attacked it with an event, boom, that first event, maybe 15, 16 people. And then you just kept doing that over and over again, knowing that this was a long game, knowing that I'm going to have to do a lot of these before, like, you know, we hit 20, then 30, then 40 people. Uh, and then you hit a point where you thought, okay, now we know how to do this here. We found some partners, people helped us out. What if I can leverage these partners or find new partners mm-hmm. to get into some other cities? Yeah. And now you're happening in other cities. What's the next challenge after that? Tell yeah. us a little, take us there. So I got really ambitious the summer of 2017, you know, as this community is growing, you know, some of the volunteers become, you know, pseudo team members. So they really want to be a part of it. At the time, Brandon, now as I want to give him a shout out, became one of the first like core team members mm-hmm. outside of my co-founder. And, you know, I saw, I was inspired by an activation that Delta did, a kind of a four day event for creatives. And we reached out to Sennheiser, an audio company, about programming a free conference with them or they get to like really display and showcase their products, educate, you know, the music and tech community on spatial audio, you know, and really just put their, their headphones in, in, in front of the creative community. And a lot wasn't really inspired by my experiences at Beats (laughs) and saying like, how do we put products and integrate it within culture as opposed to like positioning it as a product to buy, as opposed to, you know, this is part of who I am. This is my part of my brand identity. And that's the way we positioned it. We were able to collaborate with them on a very small budget to produce this four day event. We got a space for pretty, pretty cheap in 34th street. We programmed, I believe nine master classes, four panels. Um, it was really just focused on various things from spatial audio, VR. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about where digital artists is. Uh, we had various workshops on like production and folks also got to listen to those panels using wireless headphones, which was a pretty cool thing working with Sennheiser at the time, you know, just for the room. It was 
you know, $15,000, right. To put a four day conference together. Yeah. Uh, we stretched the dollars and we got a lot of favors. Cause at the time, and this is something that's to note when you're, you're starting out, you don't really know the value of what you're bringing. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was a teaching moment for me because that was steeply discounted. And I had to like prove myself and prove that my next level up wouldn't be that amount. Yeah. But I also had to show that, you know, we could do something for that amount. And obviously 15,000 is a lot, but you know, producing a four day event in retrospect is a small piece of what you could potentially really do. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to just like put that in for the room. I've never yeah. shared that before. So I love this. Well, one, this idea of like finding these again, um, I'm hearing more partnerships and how finding the right folks, you know, can help you really scale, expand, or in this case, like offer a longer form event was so then this was your first multi-day event then of the community. And this first happened in, the, in 2017. Yeah. And it, it was free. Three mm-hmm. days of educational programming. Yeah. Uh, from Wednesday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And then Saturday was all day event of just live music. And you were able to find that value proposition that really aligned with this partner. Because I imagine that these master classes were very relevant to their work. And like you said in your story, your intention was to position their products front and center at this event. And so I think that the key takeaway there is as you're engaging partners, really think about like what's in it for them. I think this is something I've seen with startup weekend events. At times, like people, organizers will approach the partners, the sponsors as like, I'm asking for a handout, like help me out to bring this event. It's good for the community, but they didn't always say like, how is it good for you? Like, how is this a good deal for you to get involved in? And I feel like what your story is sharing with us is you led with that. Here's what's good for you. Like, this is going to help you out. I want to help you out. Uh And now they wrote you a check. Granted, you know, you made a lot happen with a very small check and you brought a lot to life with a very small amount. Tell us more about that value part of it, though. Like, you know, I think that was an interesting insight that you reflected on that not really knowing, I guess, the value of what you're bringing to life maybe yeah. in the beginning. I think just understand, like, at the moment, I thought $15,000 was a lot because you go from, you know, small sponsorships, mm-hmm. you know, with companies or no sponsorships or in-kind, and then you go to this, like, large amount of money and in your mind, like, I haven't seen this lot, large amount of money for this. Yeah. So it's like a first-time experience. Mm-hmm. But once you go through it, you're like, all these expenses add up. Yeah. And you find yourself saying, well, this money wasn't enough. <laughs> so that was a learning opportunity wow. in that in that respect. But I think for those that are starting out, don't yeah. discount yourself. I think you should definitely do a due diligence on, you know, when producing something like that, if you decide to, mm-hmm. is really mapping out the budget. Yeah. And then what I've learned going forward now, mm-hmm. obviously, unless you're meeting your costs and breaking even or taking at least like a 30% margin yeah. from the initial sponsorship offering mm-hmm. or just having room for things to come up as opposed to saying like, here's a flat number and not accounting for things, mm-hmm. you know? So that was a learning opportunity. Yeah. So you learned like, you know, here's what it's going to take to do it right. Mm-hmm. And we have to at least hit this number and yeah. setting that standard, knowing that this is what it's going to take. Yeah. And I have mm-hmm. to thank a lot of people who either offered their time for free, yeah. offer their services, gave us free discounts on certain things. Mm-hmm. And, and I get it. You you have to sometimes ask for those favors in exchange for their services. All our speakers, and we, like, we asked them to speak 
for gratis. And it's, it's one of those things where they just wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. So just something to keep in mind, like you can do these things, but you know, definitely get stretched then. Yeah. If you don't think about like the full scope of the budget. But a key takeaway here is that people do want to help. People do want to get involved. And, you know, I'm thinking back to a, a startup weekend organizer that I knew and I helped out back in 2014 when I was just getting involved with startup weekend. She wanted to host an event, a startup weekend only for high school students. Okay. So it was just going to be youth focused. And, you know, she wanted to target this at mostly underserved parts of the city. So on top of it, she didn't want there to be any ticket price or anything like that. So she wanted to work with schools to find the students. She had one $2,000 sponsorship. And I thought, okay, 2000 Now I, I never organized an event like this. But as I started getting into like what it mm -hmm. takes, I realized, wait. And when I was done, and actually after I had done a few more events, I realized, wow, how did she do this with $2,000? And then I started thinking about all the things that she mentioned mm -hmm. about how she paid for some of the stuff. Dunkin' Donuts who provided like, you know, breakfast and all that. I think they took whatever the bill was, they slashed 50% off of it. And then the last breakfast was on them. Wow. Like they said, Subway did lunches, similar kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, Priscilla, how did you do that? And she goes, I just went in and asked. Like I walked into the specific store. I didn't call like Subway mm -hmm. uh, headquarters or whatever. I just went to the one that was next to the venue. <laughs> and I said, I'm doing this thing. For you. you know, can you help me out? And they, you know, they helped out. They said, yeah, can't do it for free completely, but, right. you know, but, you know, maybe a cost or whatever. And I'll yeah. just like, you know, give it to you for this much. Yeah. Um, and in some cases they just said, oh, and, and let me do the one meal. Like I'll pick up one of those meals and all that. And when I'm hearing your story, it's like, that is a big part, you know, a bunch of little ones mm -hmm. add up to really big impact. Mm -hmm. But I think that for anyone listening, we got to ask, we got to yeah. ask. And I will admit that many times I hesitate, like I'm afraid to ask. I feel like, you know, but I'm not worthy of them giving me anything like, or why is my thing good enough for them to want to do right. something? If I can't offer them something really, really amazing of value, this is a reminder, your story for me personally, and I think for others is that it's not always about that. It's not always about what we can do for them. Sometimes it's that they want to help, right? They know that, look, you're getting started and I want to do something to help you get started. So just ask. Yeah. <laughs> and right. I and I can't give you everything. I can't write checks, right. but I can hook you up with some of the product we have, or I can hook you up with my time or some people's time mm -hmm. to do that thing. And this is so important. It sounds like this was key to the early years and still yeah. even today, I think, right? To this day, for sure. And, you know, we want to pay for it too for other organizations yeah. that are starting out. Um, like even with Digilog Days, we had other organizations part of it because I want to make sure they had visibility as well because even where we're at you know we still want to be able to put everyone else on yeah as well and i think that's that's important and if we like i said i appreciate everyone who participated and volunteered their time mm -hmm. even in past events just not knowing where it could go but just being part of it and just believing it yeah yeah believing in it so take us into now the the pre-covid years like right oh, yeah. leading up to 2018 19 mm -hmm. yeah so Learned a lot from the, the Sennheiser activation. Yeah. Continued to work with them throughout, you know, leading into 2018. And then we were able to, like, partner on an event at South by Southwest. Mm -hmm. So that was our, our first South by Southwest. I was, it wasn't an official event, but mm -hmm. we did an event in Austin, did, like, a really cool panel discussion. Yeah. Uh, highlighting Austin, the Austin music community. Mm -hmm. And leading into that, you know, because of the Digilog, allowed me to also... I want to say recruited, but 
you know, um, my friend at the time, JD, was head of digital at Def Jam. <laughs> and he was like, I really love what you're doing with the Digilog. Like, you understand the social landscape. You understand intersection of music and technology. Culture is that. Do you want to consult for me at Def Jam? So that was a, probably like a huge pivot for me just from a personal standpoint. Yeah. Because now I get to like be part of this legitimate company, but also as a result of what what I was able to build with the team, mm-hmm. the Digilog. It gave me validation. It was like a, oh, people are noticing yeah. what you're doing. Mm-hmm. This isn't just like, this is a grassroots mm-hmm. thing anymore. Yeah. This is like, the industry is noticing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really cool moment. And fast forward, like as I'm working there, you know, I'm still programming Digilog events. Yep. And we were able to partner with Dolby audio at the time to do a two-day event in new york mm-hmm. so that was our like our last really big activation in mm-hmm. 2019 before the pandemic and at the time it was really like a compliment i knew i wanted to focus on the digital log i just didn't know where it, it could go mm-hmm. it was like we throw these really great meetups yeah we're community oriented but i think leading into the pandemic as problems kind of grew and we listened to the community the other verticals started to kind of come up mm-hmm. the other problems were like okay we've mastered this event space yeah now we can focus on the other problems yeah and that's why we decided to focus on music careers artist discovery you yeah. know understanding that audience within the community are also mm-hmm. different so you have your music professionals your students that want to like get opportunities to get work learn about roles artists want to get opportunities to showcase their music yeah learn about these different creative tools and then you have the multi-hyphenates that are kind of like in between mm-hmm. and then you also have the music lovers that want to come in and pivot from their like non-music jobs yeah. so we're just like understanding how to like segment the way that we message yeah within the digilog mm-hmm. so just something to note when building community it's like understanding like who in the community is part of it yeah and how to like start to like really evolve the way you you talk to them because they're growing yeah. right you know we started not the same people who showed up on the first day exactly they're not the same people and that's something to know and this goes back to what we talked about when it came to what problem you solved at the beginning you solved one problem and that was mm-hmm. it but you mentioned as the years went on you started tackling new problems and it sounds like some of those problems came not from what you might have imagined on day one but rather as your audience grew you realized, wait, they've got new problems and maybe we can get onto that career problem or maybe we can get onto that, you know, skill development problem or whatever it might be that they're now encountering that they've been with us for two or three years. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize it, you know, when we tackled like the music career problem, all we wanted to do is just post music jobs yep. on socials. So we did it on Monday and people were like, this is amazing. How do we like take job descriptions you know, make them into like bite-sized social pieces and make it super digestible. As yeah. opposed to reading like full-on job descriptions and yeah. finding them. And we decided to like multiply that to two days and really build a, a newsletter. And then you fast forward during the pandemic, I need to find someone that can really lead this. So someone I'd worked with at, at Dev Jam, who led a lot of our recruiting and our internship mm-hmm. programs. His name is Ian. He's our head of recruiting now. And he oversees our music careers. Was like, yeah, we need to partner with you because mm-hmm. we're already doing this. Yeah, but I need to find someone that really understands the space and can help really grow this space for us. Mm-hmm. So that was 
like I said, the the evolution of it, yeah. starting during the pandemic, mm-hmm. especially when people were like losing jobs. Yeah, students were like didn't know how to like navigate internships, and you know during the pandemic too, we decided to program a virtual music career summit. Okay, and essentially that that was an interesting way to like really you know program something virtually mm-hmm. because all our experiences are RL. Yeah. But it allowed us to really say like, hey, we could do this uh, virtually. Yeah. And the whole premise of it was to to get different people in different roles to talk about their roles in, in relation to an artist campaign. Mm-hmm. So I do marketing. So this applies to this mock artist. Oh, mm-hmm. I do radio. This applies to this mock artist. So we contextualize their roles in relation to like a mock campaign. Yeah that we're, we're like, I guess, workshopping. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing also is that because it was digital, it sounds like the value proposition that you and your team came up with was a little different. It was it was altered or it was custom for the channel because mm-hmm. it's now digital. Like you said, everything in, before that was in real life. Right. So that's a different like value proposition, right? Like right. I get to just walk up and meet a stranger. That may not happen in a virtual environment. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you came up with a format, you and your team came up with a format and, and a, a way of presenting the value and, and delivering it virtually that would not only satisfy, but it would really address a real problem. And I think that's a key thing. You know, when we think about during the pandemic, when events were transitioning from in-person to virtual, for many, it was just, can we get a camera in front of it and just live stream it? But that doesn't work. Like you can't live stream what was once like right. in person that was designed for in-person that was designed for humans to interact and mm-hmm. to have a captive audience and all of that. You mm-hmm. can't keep someone on their laptop for three straight days. Mm-hmm. Like not in, if they're just watching a live stream right. of a bunch of people talking, like that's not going to work for three straight days. No. You have to create a completely different experience. You got to reimagine, reinvent the experience altogether. Okay. And it sounds like, tell us a little bit more about it because I feel like you guys yeah. kind of reinvented what the event was or would have been if had it been in person. Thanks so much for listening in to today's conversation with Drew DeLeon. This is the first part out of two parts that we have with Drew. And next week, we will be releasing the second part. So stay tuned for that. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Reinvention podcast. Again, I'm your host, Roger Osorio. If you're ready to start your journey to reinvention and want to walk the path with others, visit www.rogerosorio.com and go to the School of Reinvention to check out for yourself how a community-based coaching platform can help you begin your next reinvention. You can also go to rogerosorio.com to purchase my new book, The Journey to Reinvention, and receive some exciting bonuses. Until next time, make your day great.